Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy, Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now... On with the show. (laughs) 
What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Wednesday, it is the 3rd of January. Still not feeling the best, still a bit spacey, so expect rambling. Uh, we had one game in the Premier League last night, and it turned out to be a fairly dull affair overall. West Ham nil, Brighton nil. I was really disappointed in West Ham's performance, to be totally honest. Really disappointed in West Ham's performance. They're at home, they're coming off big wins. I had hoped that they would be more aggressive. Instead, they were really passive in the game. Brighton dominated. Ariola had to make a couple of good saves. Pascal Groves probably missed the best chance of the game. Free header from seven, eight yards out, straight at the goalkeeper. But it just it wasn't the type of game I was hoping for. Now, part of it is Brighton were missing a number of players and weren't helped by the fact that Adam Webster got hurt and they didn't have another centre-back to bring on, so they had to shuffle their pack quite a bit. But it just wasn't a great game. But both sides will be happy enough with the point. It leaves West Ham in sixth, Brighton move up to seventh, ahead of Manchester United on goal difference. West Ham are five points off Spurs. And like I said yesterday, I, I do think that top five have separated themselves. And then it's the next group, which West Ham are the top of, and I would go as far as Bournemouth as the bottom of. They're the teams I think can battle out for Europa League, Europa Conference League, the second Europa League spot. One of them will go to whoever misses out on top four. Um, Brighton have had such a weird season so far. They've had a lot of injuries. They haven't defended well. Last night, the clean sheet is massive for them because they've been just really open. Now, part of that is the way De Zerbi plays. Like, his teams have never been particularly good defensively. A big part of that is he's never had the individual quality in defence. He does a very good left back at Brighton in a stupendous, but he's missed most of the season. Um, that was Brighton's first clean sheet of the season. It was game 20. And if we look back at last season, it's their first clean sheet since the 14th of May when they played Arsenal in their 34th game of the season. So they went 23 games without a clean sheet. Again, individual quality isn't really there, but you look at who they have. I mean, Lamptey's missed some games. Igor Julio hasn't settled in. Adam Webster's had a really poor season. Like He has fallen off drastically over the last 18 months or so. He wasn't helped by losing his spot to Colwell last year. I think that really hurt his confidence. Lewis Dunk has been very poor this season. He's all of a sudden starting to look his age. I don't think Van Hecke is particularly good. He's good on the ball. I don't think he's a particularly good defender. Estupinen is tremendous, but like I said earlier, he's missed He's missed so much time. And Veltman, he's also looking his age. He's about to turn 32, same as Dunk who turned 32 in November, and they just look like they're a little bit past their best. They're having to play people like Milner, who turns 38 tomorrow, and 
really isn't good enough to play in the Premier League anymore. They're having to play Pascal Grouse at fullback at times. And he's fine, but he's they miss him in midfield when he's not there. Hinchelwood, he's a, he's a child. He'll be 19 in, in, in April. He's a good midfield prospect. He's had to play him at fullback a couple of times and it doesn't look right. So I do think if they're going to do anything in January, it needs to be a defender. Primarily, I'd go right back because then you could use Veltman a bit more in the middle where his aging might not be as exposed. Um, I'd just like to see them tighten things up a little bit. I get that the style of play can be a little bit risky the way they play out from the back. But I'd just like to see them tighten things up just a small bit. Because if they could have a more solid defensive base, which at times they had last season, I I think it will help them. Like It's always going to be easier to win a game 1-0 than it is to win a game 3-2. West Ham can be really happy with their Christmas period. Despite the fact that last night's performance and result are not what they would have wanted. But they they beat Wolves comfortably. They beat United comfortably. And they beat Arsenal comfortably. And Arsenal fans can crib and cry and point to XG and all the rest of the nonsense and field tilt and all that horseshit. West Ham deserved to beat them. And I just had thought that last night they'd come in on a high and they'd take the game to Brighton because they've done well against Brighton. I mean, you look back earlier this season, they went to Brighton and won 3-1. Now, a big part of that was Mikel Antonio. The way he plays causes a lot of trouble for defences like Brighton. Brighton struggle against big, quick, physical attackers. We've seen... Ollie Watkins destroy them, for example. We've seen Dominic Calvert-Lewin demolish their backline. And Antonio's another that's done it. West Ham, Moyes had some complaints about the game last night because they weren't able to play Agard. They weren't able to play Kudus. That's all well and good. But, I mean, you played Arsenal a few days earlier and... You didn't play Agard in that. You didn't have Agard in that one. You know, you didn't have him for that one either, and yet you were still fine with Ogbon and Mavroponos. So that centre back pairing has proof of concept that it works. Kudus for sure a big blow, and obviously no Paqueta with the injury. Hopefully he's back soon. But you know, it's not like Pablo Fornals and Said Benrama are bad players, and you did have Max Cornet sitting on the bench. You did have Danny Ings sitting on the bench, and you decided not to play them. You brought on Mabuma, who's a very talented young player, but he's a young player. I mean, what's he got? 14 senior appearances to his name? And only three goals? You know, he's not going to come on and change that game for you last night. But Max Cornet, proven Premier League operator, I know he hasn't had the best of times at West Ham, that's in large part down to Moyes not using him enough. But he's someone that could have changed that game for you. Could have brought him on at left back and been more adventurous or played him on the wing. Anyway, we'll move on. 
it is Wednesday, so we're going to go back to being nostalgic on Wednesday. And what we're going to be nostalgic about is the FA Cup, because this is FA Cup third round weekend coming up. And it actually begins tomorrow, begins on Thursday, with Everton going south to take on Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park. Then we have three games on Friday. Brentford home to Wolves, Fulham home to Rotherham, Tottenham home to Burnley. So we're getting three all-Premier League clashes between tomorrow and Friday. Now, I would have preferred if they'd also, if they put two on tomorrow, two on Friday, I think it would have just made it a little bit easier to, to watch the games, but such is life. Saturday then, we have four 12.30 kickoffs, Maidstone against Stevenage, Coventry Oxford, Millwall Leicester, AFC Wimbledon against Ipswich. Then we have a 12.45, which is one of the marquee games of the weekend. It's Sunderland against Newcastle. I know it's Championship against Premier League, but it's Sunderland against Newcastle. It's one of the biggest rivalries in the country, so that is must-watch. At 3 p.m., we get Watford-Chesterfield, Stoke-Brighton, Gillingham-Sheffield United, Blackburn against Cambridge, Newport County against Eastleigh, Norwich against Bristol Rovers, QPR against Bournemouth, Plymouth against Sutton United, Southampton against Walsall, and Hull City against Birmingham City. Then we have four 5.30 kickoffs. Sheffield Wednesday versus Cardiff, Chelsea Preston, Swansea against Morecambe, and Middlesbrough against Aston Villa. And what could be an interesting enough game, Villa, they're going so well in the league and in the Conference League. And I don't think they have the squad to really sustain another cup run. So I do wonder if Emery will go with a heavily rotated team for the Ugo Ekiog slash Gareth Barry uh, derby here. Um, I would have liked one of these games to get flexed out till 8 o'clock or potentially have two of them on at 8 o'clock. But it's a good Saturday of viewing. Like, you can watch three games, no problem. I would just have rather had four that I could watch without any kind of interference with anything else. Because I would have liked to have gone Sunderland against Newcastle. I think that's definitely the the early game to watch. Of the 3 p.m. games... Stoke Brighton is an interesting one. I think Brighton might take the FA Cup quite seriously as an opportunity to potentially win some silverware. Uh, QPR Bournemouth, purely to watch Bournemouth. QPR are not good this year. Or Hull versus Birmingham, if you want to see what a mess Birmingham have become. Now, Rooney's obviously gone, but I don't think the pain is going to leave as quickly. And then in the late games, for me, it's Borough Villa. Borough Villa, that to me is going to be a good game. Then on the Sunday, we have seven 2 p.m. kickoffs, seven of them. West Ham, Bristol, uh, Bristol City, that is, Nottingham Forest, Blackpool, Luton against Bolton, Peterborough against Leeds, Shrewsbury against Wrexham, West Brom against Aldershot, and Manchester City versus Huddersfield. Peterborough Leeds is the game for me there because I want to see Ronnie Edwards and I want to see Archie Gray. 
Um, there is one 4.30 kickoff that is Arsenal versus Liverpool, which is the marquee game of the round. And then on Monday night at quarter past eight, it's Wigan versus Manchester United. Overall, it's a pretty good draw. It means we'll get a lot of lower league teams into the fourth round because we do have, you know, a decent amount of Premier League versus Premier League. We'll talk more about it on Friday with Guy. We'll probably run through and do do quick predictions. We won't do anything uh, in depth because uh, how on earth would you? Like, I, you're not watching Shrewsbury or Wrexham each week. Um, but, yeah, that's an interesting game for, for a couple of reasons. Um, anyway, so what the FA Cup got me thinking of was, well, the current holders are obviously Manchester City. And Manchester City won it last year as part of a treble, but part of a domestic double for getting the European Cup. So I started thinking about teams that have done the double. And I started thinking about how much more frequent, I think I've touched on this before, how much more frequent it is for teams to do the double now than it used to be. Because I remember when United did the double in 93-94. It's the first time in the Premier League era that the double had been done. Obviously, it's the second season of the Premier League. And then United did it again a couple of years later. And they were the first team to do the double twice. And at that stage, all the double winning teams were kind of held in this historic light. And you go back and you look at them, and the first team to ever do it was Preston North End. 1889, they won both trophies. League title, FA Cup. They were unbeaten in the league that year. 18 wins, four draws in 22 games. Scored 74 goals in 22 games. Conceded only 15. Won the league by 11 points. Two points for a win, of course. In the FA Cup, they won all six matches without conceding a single goal, which is an immense achievement. They beat Bootle, they beat Grimsby Town, they beat Birmingham St. George's, West Bromwich Albion, and Wolverhampton Wanderers. And obviously, look, we've never seen a single one of these games, don't know these players, but we know that that achievement is impressive. Because subsequent history tells us that it's a really impressive achievement. The next time the double was done was eight years later. Aston Villa did the double. Played 30 games in the league, 121 with five draws and four defeats. Scored 73 goals, conceded 38, 47 points. Also went on and won the FA Cup, defeating Everton in the final. 3-2. They'd beaten Liverpool in the semi-final in the Third round, they knocked out Preston. Well, quarterfinal as it was, knocked out Preston. They'd knocked out Notts County and they had knocked out Newcastle. 
And then nobody did it for 64 years. And it became the stuff of myth, the idea that you could win both at the same time. Until the legendary Spurs team of Bill Nicholson in 1960-61. Now, this season, in many ways, haunts Spurs fans because it's the last time they won the league title. They'd won it in 1951. They win it again in 1961. This is their third time winning the FA Cup. They've obviously gone on and won it five times since. But this is the last time they win the league title. They finish eight points clear of Sheffield Wednesday. 42 games played. 31 wins. Four draws, seven defeats. Scored 115 goals. Conceded 55, 66 points. In the FA Cup, they beat Charlton. They beat Crewe. They beat... Aston Villa, they beat Sunderland in a replay, they beat Burnley, then they beat Leicester City in the final. You look at some of the names in that squad, you've got Bobby Smith, rarely discussed what a great player he was. Spent his career with Chelsea, majority of it with Spurs, then played for Brighton and Hastings. 15 caps for England, 13 goals. Didn't get capped until quite late. He was 27. And only had a three-year span in the national team, but was immensely prolific for them. He scored 33 goals in all competitions that year. His strike partner, Les Allen, he scored 26 He never got capped by England, despite a good career with Chelsea, Spurs, and then QPR. Cliff Jones, on the right wing, he kicked in with 20 goals. And Terry Dyson, on the left wing, he scored 17 goals. So you're getting 96 goals between the league and the FA Cup from four players. And if that's not enough, John White scored 13 from midfield. So you're looking at a team that was a really high-powered attacking group under Bill Nicholson, who is, without question, the greatest manager Spurs ever had. Won their only league title, won three FA Cups, two League Cups, the UEFA Cup, and the European Cup Winners' Cup. And it is often forgotten. Like, Spurs have a better European pedigree than Arsenal do. The UEFA Cup, as they won it, was harder to win than the Intercity's Fairs Cup that Arsenal won. They've both got a European Cup Winners' Cup, and they've both been to one European Cup final. They did also win the Anglo-Italian Cup, which I believe we should bring back. Championship teams versus Serie B teams. Let's put something together. And I think that'd be fun. Um, 
But yeah, Bill Nicholson created a Spurs team that was just a machine going forward. 115 league goals in 42 league games is very, very impressive. Like when teams score 100 goals now in the 38-game season, we're in awe of that. Yes, they played four games more. They scored 15 goals more. Now, defensively, they obviously left themselves quite open. That's why they conceded 55. But the team that finished in third conceded 75. The team that finished fourth conceded 77. That was Burnley. Imagine Sean Dyche's horror at the idea that a team he once managed conceded 77 goals in a single calendar season. Uh, in the FA Cup, they again, high-powered. Three, two, five, one, but then five in the replay. Three in the semi-final, two in the final. This Spurs team scored for fun. And in that front four of Bobby Smith, Les Allen, Cliff Jones and Terry Dyson, they had four players that could score at a very high level. we got a winger now scoring 20 goals in all competitions. We think it's the best thing in the world. That's a £100 million player. And a midfielder adding 13 goals. Very, very impressive. After Spurs did it, no one does it for 10 years. And unfortunately for Spurs, the team that did it next was Arsenal. Under Bertie Mee, the Arsenal team of 70-71. 42 games, 29 wins, 7 draws, 6 defeats. 71 goals scored, 29 conceded. Football is a bit more similar to what it is now at this point. Prior to that, it was very much, let's just try and score more goals than them and not worry about anything else. In the FA Cup, they beat Yeovil, they beat Portsmouth in a replay, they beat Man City, they beat Leicester in a replay, they beat Stoke in a replay, and they beat Liverpool in the final with Charlie George um, scoring an outstanding goal from, from distance. And Charlie George is one of the kind of forgotten talents of the 60s and 70s. One of the guys that really did live the playboy lifestyle or was purported to have lived the playboy lifestyle. Whether he did or not, I have no idea. But he had long hair. He looked like a bit of a lad. He was immensely talented. He didn't quite last the distance at Arsenal. He came through their academy made his debut at 18. By 25, they were shipping him out. He went to Derby County. He was there for three years. And then he went to Minnesota Kicks at the age of 28. Came back, played at Southampton shortly after, had a loan to Nottingham Forest, and then sort of drifted as a journeyman. But that goal, if you've, you've seen that goal, picks it up, shoots from 20 yards, slides and lies flat on his back with his arms aloft. And Arsenal win the cup. That Arsenal team, you've got people like Peter Storey, 
Very, very good midfield player. Could also play at fullback. You've got Ray Kennedy. Possibly better known for his time with Liverpool than with Arsenal. But he was a great player for Arsenal as well. An incredible player for Liverpool. And one of the most underrated players of all time. You've got George Graham. He obviously probably best known to a lot of people now as a manager at Arsenal, at Leeds, at Spurs, prior to Arsenal, the manager at Millwall. But he was a very good player in his own right. As an attacking midfield type. Tough as nails as well, like most Scots of the time. you got Bob Wilson. A lot of people know him from some of the TV work that he's done. But he was a great goalkeeper. A truly great goalkeeper. Pat Rice. He was a long-time assistant to Arsene Wenger. So Arsenal win the double in 71. It's now been done four times in history. And no one does it again until Liverpool in 85-86. So this was Kenny Dalglish's first season as manager. He was player manager, 34 years of age. He'd taken over from Joe Fagan, who had decided to step down. The Heisel tragedy, obviously a factor in that. But Joe just didn't really want to be manager. He'd taken over because Bob Paisley had resigned and it was just his turn. But he just wanted to be in the background more than anything. So Kenny takes over. And, I mean, he's he's taking over a, a Liverpool team that had finished second the year before. They'd gotten to the FA Cup final, uh, the FA Cup semi-final. And that was seen as a bit of a disappointment. Even though they'd gotten to the European Cup final and lost, it was a disappointing season for Liverpool because they hadn't won anything. They'd gotten so used to winning everything. In Fagan's first season, 83-84, they win the League, the League Cup, and the European Cup. In Paisley's last season, they won the League and the League Cup. The season before that, they'd won the League and the League Cup. The season before that, they'd won the League Cup and the European Cup. Before that, they'd won the League. Season before that, they won the League. Season before that, they won the European Cup. So Liverpool had been on this run of winning major honours year after year. And then 85, 84, 85-86, Sorry, 84-85 was the disappointment, and 85-86 was the season they had to re-establish themselves. In the league, 42 games, 26 wins, 10 draws, 6 defeats. Win the title by two points ahead of Everton. Obviously, they don't get to play in the European Cup the following year because of the Heysel ban. Having pipped Everton to the title by two points, thanks to a great run of games to end the season. Four wins, then a draw, then seven straight wins. 11 wins out of 12 to end that season. 
They win the title at Stamford Bridge. Kenny himself scores the only goal of the game. And they snatch the title away from a great Everton team. A genuinely great Everton team. And not only that, they then beat them in the FA Cup final. So they beat Norwich, they beat Chelsea, they need a replay to beat York City, they need a replay to beat Watford, then they beat Southampton in extra time, two goals for me and Rush. And then in the final, they beat Everton 3-1. Now remember, Everton had won the league the year before and signed Gary Lineker, who after Ian Rush played the best, second best number nine in the league, Everton finished second and losing the FA Cup final. Lineker does score, put Everton one up. Then Rush scores, then Craig Johnston scores, and then Rush scores again. And Liverpool win the double. And they'd won doubles before, but not this double. Because this is a different type of double. This was the one that really mattered. This was the third time in the modern game and only the fifth time overall that this had been done. And it's three years shy of a hundred years since Preston had done it. And that's all we've had from Preston to Liverpool. Five times the double had been done. Five. And now, that's 97 years, remember. Now, we're 39 years on, 38 years on, excuse me, 38 years on. And it's been done 13 times. So eight times in the last 39 years, 38 years. Because next up would be United. In 93-94, they'd won the title the year before. They'd finally broken that ho- that jinx, the hoodoo that was over them. 26 years without a title. Finally, Alex Ferguson delivers it. They'd go on and they'd win the league for the second season in a row. 92 points, 27 wins, 11 draws, 4 defeats. Finish 8 points clear of Blackburn. In the FA Cup, they beat Sheffield United, Norwich, Wimbledon, Charlton. Needed a replay to beat Oldham, having been very, very fortunate to draw the first semi-final. Needing a late, late Mark Hughes goal. The game had gone to overtime. Oldham had scored. Hughes scored late. Game goes to replay in United Wallop them 4-1. And that FA Cup final... it. There was never anything more certain than United were going to win that game. Even though it was nil-nil on 59 minutes, you knew United were going to win the game. Cantona scores a penalty. Cantona scores another penalty. Mark Hughes scores, and they get three goals in eight minutes. And then Brian McClare wrapped it up on 90. It's forgotten by many that United almost won the domestic treble that year. They got to the FD, the League Cup final, and were beaten by Aston Villa. 
Now, the, the European Cup campaign was a disaster. Uh, they didn't even make it into the group stage, but they knocked out by Galatasaray. That's the famous welcome to hell um, scene where they turn up at the airport and the Turks are there going nuts. Um, but Aston Villa denied them the domestic treble, beat them 3-1 in the, in the League Cup final. United would obviously win it again then in 95-96. This was the shortest gap we'd had between doubles. And it's obviously the first time that anyone has done this twice. In the league, they win the league by four points from Newcastle. This is the famous season where Newcastle were rampant and running away with it by January. And United just... just hunted them down like a machine. United were phenomenal. United lost on New Year's Day. I'll never forget watching that game. New Year's Day, it's a famous game where William Prunier, who was a trialist for United, they were looking at signing him. I think he played against QPR in the previous game off the bench and looked fairly impressive. But he played in this game on New Year's Day at White Hart Lane. And I watched this game in my parents' kitchen with my cousins, Carl and Steve. And Spurs battered them, beat them 4-1. And at this point, United looked dead and buried. It looked like Newcastle were going to run run away with it. United had beaten them uh, a few days earlier. But it looked like Newcastle were going to run away with the league, especially when they got walloped. By, by Spurs, a Spurs team that were no great shakes. And then they just turned it on. They drew with Villa next time out. Then they won six in a row, drew with QPR, won four in a row, lost to Southampton away. United always lost to Southampton away back then, it felt like. And then they won their last three games and they won the league by four points. Newcastle just fell, fell all over themselves in the back half of that season. If we pull up Newcastle's season, Newcastle were phenomenal. Phenomenal. Up until mid-February, they'd lost three games. Away to Southampton, away to Chelsea, and away to United. They'd drawn three games. Away to Tottenham, away to Villa, and away to Wimbledon. Newcastle home games were an absolute banker. They were winning those games. They were just unstoppable. You look at that team, you check a Hislop and goal, Warren Barton at right back, Peacock and Howie in the middle, John Beresford at left back, Keith Gillespie on the right, David Ginola on the left, Lee, Car- Lee Clark and Rob Lee in the middle, Beardsley and Les Ferdinand. And that team was going to win the league. You had Philippe Albert, could rotate in at centre back, could play holding midfield. You had Steve Watson could play either fullback spot. Robbie Elliott was a solid backup left back. Paul Kitson, decent deputy in attack. You had Rule Fox. You had Scott Sellers. You had young Darren Huckerby, squad, squad players. And for some reason, and you had Pavel Cernicek as the other goalkeeping option, and he was decent. He was decent. So when Hislop got injured, you had a good goalkeeper coming in. But for some reason, 
for some reason, Toon got themselves overexcited in the January. Now, I could understand the signing of David Batty. That Newcastle team were electric going forward, but the knock on them was they were a little bit too open at the back. They were committing too many men forward. So David Batty made sense. He's 27 years of age, proven commodity. He'd won a league title with Leeds. He'd been part of a league title with Blackburn, though he missed most of the season injured. He was an England regular for the squad, maybe not so much a starter, but an England squad regular. Tough as nails. Absolutely tough as nails. Really, really good player. Could understand that move. What you couldn't understand was Tino Esprit. It was very exciting at the time. He was one of the most entertaining players to watch anywhere in the world. He'd been part of that really fun Parma team with Brolin and Zola. Kind of the first, the first great Parma team. But he was known to be a lunatic. And the signing of him blew up that season. Because the money they paid for him, which was seven million, which was big money at the time, demanded that he had to play. And in playing him, you had to either move Beardsley out of the team, which he was so important, Peter Beardsley, or you had to play him wide, in which case you were dropping Keith Gillespie, who'd been brilliant. Keith Gillespie was just, he was a really straightforward, old-fashioned winger. He's going to knock it by you. He's going to use his pace. He was going to get the ball whipped in. He was a really good cross for the ball. And Les Ferdinand was feasting off those crosses. Les Ferdinand was brilliant in the air, and you had a spree, you had uh, Gillespie and Ginola crossing for him. You had Beardsley buzzing around as the creator-in-chief, dragging defenders here, there, and everywhere. You had Rob Lee bursting forward from midfield. The formula was simple, it was brilliant, and it worked. And adding a spree, you blew it all up. And having lost only three games between the 19th of August when the season kicked off and they beat Coventry 3-0 and the 10th of February when they went to Middlesbrough and beat them 2-1. Newcastle would lose five of their next eight games, including a home game against Manchester United. They lost to West Ham. They drew at Man City. They lost at home to United. The only loss they had at home all season. They then beat West Ham. They went to Arsenal and lost. They went to Liverpool and lost the famous 4-3. They beat QPR at home. They went to Blackburn and lost. Then they got the ship righted. They beat Leeds. Sorry, they beat uh, Villa. They beat Southampton. They went and beat Leeds. And they still had a chance at winning the title. 
but they needed to win their last two games and really put the pressure on United. And instead, they drew at Forest in their second-to-last game, which was the 2nd of May. United had played Forest four days previously and beat them 5-0. Then on the final day, they drew at home with Spurs and United went and beat Middlesbrough quite comfortably. That was a great season. But Newcastle should have won the league that year. The Espria signing absolutely blew that team up. United will win the FA Cup to complete the double. They needed a replay to beat Sunderland in the third round. Then they beat Reading, Manchester City, Southampton, Chelsea, and then they faced Liverpool in the final. And this is the famous final where Liverpool turned up looking like a gang of prats, wearing the white suits. The Spice Boys tag was never to leave them after that. It was a fairly dour game, and Eric Cantona won it late on for United after David James did what David James does and fucking come out and flapped it across and made a mess of things. And uh, great finish by Cantona, to be fair. But, um, yeah, United, the double-double. Arsenal would then do it in 97-98 under Arsene Wenger. This is the first great Wenger team. You've got David Seaman in goal. You've got a back four with Dixon, Winterburn, Tony Adams, and then Steve Bowles and Martin Keown rotating in the other centre-back spot. You've got Vieira and Petit in centre midfield. You've got Mark Overmars on the left, Ray Parler on the right. And you've got Burkamp. And then the other striker spot is Ian Wright and Nicholas Anelka in rotation. You've got Gilles Grimande for depth. You've got David Platt, good depth midfielder at that point in his career. Remy Gard is knocking around Luis Boamorte. Stephen Hughes, very talented young player at the time, didn't quite didn't quite go on to become the player he was expected to be. It was a good Arsenal team. And they won the league by one point for Manchester United. But they actually won the league by seven points and then stopped playing. They beat Everton on the fourth the, in the third last game of the season, beat them 4-0, and that wrapped the title up for them. So they got hammered by Liverpool next time out and then they lost to uh, Aston Villa. But neither of those games made any difference at all. Arsenal had the title wrapped up and could focus in on the FA Cup where they needed a replay to beat Port Vale. Then they beat Middlesbrough. Then they needed a replay against Crystal Palace. Then they needed a replay against West Ham and beat them on penalties. Then they beat Wolves in the semi-final and then they beat Newcastle in the final. So now we have a third double in four years to get to the three before it was 32, 33 years from United's first one going back to the Spurs one it was 25 years between Spurs and Liverpool 25 years now we have three in four years 
three and five seasons is the best way to look at it. And because that wasn't enough, United did it again. 98-99, the treble. And what a team. What an incredibly, disgustingly good team. Schmeichel, Neville, Irwin, Janssen and Stam, Beckham, Scholes, Keane and Giggs, the greatest four-person midfield I think it's ever been. And you got Cole and York up front. But it's not just that. What it was with this, this group was the depth. You had David May, you had Henning Berg, quality backup defenders. Wes Brown, an emerging backup defender, a very promising young player. Phil Neville, people like to laugh. Phil Neville was a good player, a good fullback. In midfield, you had Nicky Butt and you had Jesper Blomquist. So you had a quality backup in the middle and you had a quality wing backup who could play either side. And then you had Sheringham and Solskjaer for your, your depth up front. That United squad was incredibly deep. Raymond van der Hau was a solid backup goalkeeper as well, it must be pointed out. That United squad was pretty much perfect. There's no flaw in that squad. Of the starting 11, Schmeichel was world-class. Stam was world-class. Irwin was world-class. Keane was world-class. Scholes was world-class. Giggs was world-class. Beckham, I think, was world-class for a time, for sure. I would say York was world-class. Cole, not so much, but Cole was a world-class goal scorer. Not a player, but a goal scorer. You had world-class players littered through that team. And the ones who weren't, Gary Neville was never going to let you down. He was always 7 out of 10, the annoying little rat. Ronnie Johnson wasn't a world-class player, but was unbelievably quick. Ronnie Johnson was lightning. The perfect centre-back partner for Stam, who was quick himself. But Stam could go and attack everything, knowing that Ronnie Johnson could cover him behind. The midfield is the perfect balance. You've got the crosser and passer that Beckham was the controller, the physical presence, the ball winner, the the organizer, the leader of team. You've got the world-class controlling and passing of Paul Scholes. You've got Giggs, a great crosser of the ball, lightning quick, able to beat anyone 1v1. That midfield balance is perfect. And then the front two, Cole and York, they they just clicked straight away. Unbelievable chemistry in that team. And obviously Alex Ferguson is a very special manager. But that was a very special team. And that was the fifth double in six seasons. No, the fourth double in six seasons. Excuse me. The fourth double in six seasons. In the history of of English football, prior to the foundation of the Premier League, Excuse me. We had had five. 
And now, within less than a decade, within seven years of the Premier League being in existence, we'd had four. Three for United, one for Arsenal. Arsenal would then do it again in 0102. This is the second Wenger team. This is five doubles now in nine seasons. We'd had five in 105 years, and now we have five in nine seasons. So this Arsenal team, this Arsenal team was great, obviously. Obviously, Wenger, one of the all-time greats. People can hold the European Cup over his head, whatever. You David Seaman in goal. He was past his best at this point, but he was still decent. You had Loren at right back. They still had Lee Dixon as the backup, so solid. Ashley Cole had taken over at left back. You had Keon and... Sorry. Uh, you had Keon and Saul Campbell at centre-back. Tony Adams in rotation. You had Vieira in midfield, largely playing with Gilles Grimonde, who obviously isn't quite of the same caliber as the rest of this team. Um, who else played in midfield? Edu would have played a bunch of games. Ray Parler played central midfield a, a decent amount that year as well. You had Robert Perez on the left. You had Freddie Lumberg on the right. Giovanni Van Bronckhorst played across the midfield that year as well. And then up front, you had Burkamp and Henri. Sylvain Wiltord um, in rotation with Burkamp, could also play in the wide roles. Very versatile squad. The thing that was missing was the partner for Vieira. And Gilberto Silva would arrive after this season and c- kind of complete the team. And then they go on and have the unbeaten season. But you look at the depth that they have here. Canu, Wiltord, like I said, not part of their best 11. Parler, not part of their best 11. Still a good player, though. Uh, Lushny. Edu. Matthew Upson. He was solid. Richard Wright, who they'd signed with the idea that he was going to be their goalkeeper of the future, and he never quite worked out. Uh, Stuart Taylor actually was quite important for them that year. You had Franny Jeffers, another one that didn't work out. Um, Igor Stepanoff's who? Ray Parler tells quite a mean story about him, and I, and I don't really, I don't really like that story. Um, but yeah, look, there you go. You've got five double winners in the first nine years of the Premier League, having had five ever prior to the Premier League, which shows how football had changed. Now, since the Arsenal won, it's only been done three times. Chelsea did it in 09-10. City did it in 18-19 as part of a domestic treble. And then City did it again last year as part of a, a, a treble treble with the European Cup. Um, but those are different because... There's always going to be question marks over whether City did it within the rules or not. And there's question marks of whether Chelsea did it within the rules or not. There was never those questions about any of the others. Never. But I remember in the 90s, 
because the 80s, a little bit too early for me. I was four when Liverpool won the the double. I remember in the 90s what a special thing it was. And what an, what an amazing achievement it was for teams to win the double because the FA Cup mattered so much. Now, the FA Cup doesn't have the same allure. It doesn't have the same luster. So I don't think teams take it as, as seriously. We see a lot more rotation in the FA Cup, which is a shame. But the prize money's not there, so a lot of teams just don't put the focus on it. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll just wrap up with the gossip. I'll see you after this. Right, welcome back. So, a um, couple of quick bits of news. Uh, Yusuf Atal, the Nice and Algerian right-back, has been handed an eight-month suspended sentence by a French court for inciting religious hatred in a social media post about the conflict in Israel and Gaza. Interesting. I remember seeing that post, and I don't remember thinking it was inciting religious hate. Uh, it was, however, in support of the Palestinians, so that's obviously what, what the issue is here. Um, Phil McNulty asks the question, is the end of, is the sacking at Birmingham the end of Wayne Rooney, the manager? Uh, my bet is no. My bet is that he will get uh, another job somewhere. Um, it's It's pretty obvious that He's not a good manager. In the same way, Gerard is not a good manager. Lampard is not a good manager. Gary and Phil Neville are not good managers. Saul Campbell is not a good manager. This era of English footballers just didn't turn out many good managers. I think the only one of the top players that looks like he has the potential is Michael Carrick. Um, now, Ashley Cole is quite hard, highly rated as a coach, but hasn't shown any real interest in becoming a manager. Paul Scholes was briefly a manager at Oldham, but the Oldham situation was a mess. It was nothing to do with Scholes. And John Terry has made it known he'd like to be a manager, but nobody's likely to hire him because, you know, he's John Terry. Um, Not someone you really want around your club. Uh, Jenny Hermoso has testified that the World World Cup final kiss from... Luis Rubiales was not consensual. Good for her. Good for her. I hope he gets the book thrown at him. Garth Crooks has given us another laughable team of the week. Matt Turner in goal. Absolutely not. Ogbana, Murillo and Kilman as the back three. Just going to say no and move on to the midfield of Foden, Palmer, Gibbs, uh, Gibbs White and Olise, they all played really well. I don't have an issue there. Um, but how Curtis Jones doesn't get in, I don't know, because his performance against Newcastle matched all of these. He just didn't sc- oh, He did score. He did score. How hasn't Curtis Jones gotten in? Uh, Salah, Chris Wood. I mean, please, what are we doing here? And Wang, who didn't play all that well, but did score. Um, Garth Crook's an idiot. On to the gossip. Newcastle are determined not to be too reactive to their injury issues and stick to their long-term plan in the transfer market, meaning a move for Calvin Phillips could be in doubt. But I 
would be fairly certain it would be a lone move that Newcastle will be looking for there. Um, both Crystal Palace and Fulham are also interested. Palace could use him while Decoure is out, so that that does make sense. This is great. Manchester United have drawn up a four-strong wish list for a new striker in January. Timo Werner's on the list. Okay. Serhu Garassi. Okay. Thomas Muller. And Eric Maxime Chupamoting. <laughs> Who is coming up with these lists? Uh, Ivan Tony is hopeful of a move to Arsenal, but the Gunners have no intention of paying the 100 million asking price. Now, the only person, the only people reporting that he's hopeful of a move are the enormous spoofer Steve Kay and the enormous spoofer Fabrizio Romano. They're the only people saying that. Nobody else has said anything of the sort. The only way Arsenal could get him in is to loan him with an obligation to buy, but they can't do that because they've already got David Rea in on loan from the same club. Uh, Jaden Sancho is keen on a return to Borussia Dortmund as he considers this the ideal option to regain his best form. Tottenham are unlikely to make a move for Conor Gallagher because uh, they're unable to meet Chelsea's demands. Now, the only person who has... The only people who have linked Conor Gallagher to Tottenham are the enormous spoofers at footballtransfers.com, Steve Kay and Jack Talbot. Uh, and it's now them saying that it's unlikely to happen. So well done, lads. Uh, Everton are considering a move for Jesse Lingard. Jesus wept. <laughs> John Jan Duran of Aston Villa is a target for AC Milan. Okay. West Ham and Czech Republic defender Vladimir Sufal is unhappy with his contract situation and wants to wants the club. I don't believe that. I don't believe he wants the club to consider offers for him. I don't believe that for a second. Sheffield United are pushing to sign Ben Breerton Diaz from Villarreal and Casper Schmeichel from Anderlecht. Hmm. Things have not gone well for Ben Breerton Diaz since moving to Villarreal. Um, he's played 12 times. He hasn't scored. I think it's actually more than that. Hang on. Let's have a quick look. He's played 19 times and hasn't scored or or had an assist. Uh, I do like the player. I think he's a I think he is a good player, but it hasn't gone well for him. Now he hasn't played a huge amount. Should point out 20 appearances, no goals, no assists, but it is only 569 minutes. It's not like he's had starts every week. He's had very few real opportunities. Um, but still, it, it's not working. He should probably look for something else. Uh Treble Chalaba may leave Chelsea this window. We know that. Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos are considering bringing in both Dan Ashford and Paul Mitchell to completely revamp how Manchester United approach the transfer market. That just sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Arsenal have opened talks over a new contract with Takahiro Tomiyasu. Okay. Uh, West Ham could reignite their interest in Max Kilman, but a move is unlikely to happen in January. That's 
fairly straightforward. Uh, Sasek Kalazic is a target for Eidrich Frankfurt if Gary O'Neill will so- sanction a loan move. Fulham's move for Andre is on hold because they're w- unwilling to meet the $25 million asking price now that they believe Joe Polina is going to stay. That's a bit strange. That's a bit strange. Liverpool are not interested in signing Polina, Andre, or Pierre Hincapier. Let's be fair. Um, ben Jacobs has no idea what Liverpool are doing. Everybody knows they're not after Andre. Everybody is fairly sure they're not after Polina. Hincapier, they do like, but Dor- uh, Leverkusen won't sell him because they're losing two players to AFCON. So it's more likely that than anything else, but Ben Jacobs wouldn't know either way. Uh, on loan, Everton midfielder, Arna, uh, Everton winger, Arnaut Danjuma is a target for Leon. With the Virial man joining Saeed Ben Rama as an option. Um, okay. Radu Dragazin has agreed personal terms with Tottenham. Brentford Aaron talks with Real Betis over Asan Diao. Okay. I think we had that one yesterday. Borussia Dortmund have held talks with Chelsea's 21 year old Dutch midfielder, defender, everything. Ian Matson over a January move, but the Blues are holding out for thirty million. Doesn't he only have six months left in his deal? What is the Ian Matson contract situation? Maybe they have an option for another year. They do, they do, and they've triggered it by the looks of things. Uh, Liverpool will not be rushed into making a decision on Fabio Carvalho. Crystal Palace have had numerous bids for Ronnie Edwards turned down. They face competition from up to five Premier League sides with Peterborough holding out for 10 million. I think you'd probably get him for like six plus add-ons, but he's a really good young player. Um, Italian club Atalanta are closing in on Birmingham and Wales midfielder Jordan James after making a 3.9 million pound bid. He does look a player. From the bits I've seen, he does look a player. Right, folks, that'll do. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.